0: When you think about January 6th, 2021, what comes to mind? Let's go! Let's go! Hey, let's go! Let's go! You might think about the images, the throngs of revved up, angry Trump supporters breaking down barricades, swarming up the Capitol steps, some using flagpoles and whatever else they could get their hands on to beat back officers who stood in their way. You might hear the sounds, the shattering of glass, the screams and shouts of those who made it inside as they scoured the cavernous halls of Congress. In all, the Department of Justice says it has criminally charged more than a thousand people for their roles in the attack. But remember what brought so many to Washington in the first place.
1: Why
0: are you here today? Uh to support Trump. He asked us to be here, so we're gonna be here for you. Despite an impeachment and a massive congressional investigation, Trump had not been held criminally accountable for the countless election lies he told in the days and months leading up to January 6th. That started to change on Tuesday.
1: We are following the historic and breaking news of the third criminal indictment of former President Donald J. Trump. Former President of the United States, who is now the current front-runner for the Republican presidential nomination, charged with trying to undermine the will of the American voters in order to cling to power.
0: My guest this week is CNN senior legal analyst, Ellie Honig. We're gonna talk about what makes this indictment stand out from the rest, how Trump is responding, and why Special Counsel Jack Smith not done digging. From CNN, this is one thing. I'm David Ryan. Hello, Ellie. Hey, David. Thanks for having me back. Yeah. So I just kind of want to acknowledge right off the bat this idea that I've heard of indictment fatigue. You know, some people say, hey, you've seen one indictment of a former president. You've seen them all. But legal experts such as yourself have said, you know, not all indictments are created equal. So why does this
1: one matters so much. So first of all, this indictment relating to what we sometimes for shorthand call January 6th, but I don't actually think is quite accurate to describe it. But this indictment relating to the 2020 election is different from the others because of the severity of the conduct, because this indictment strikes at the heart of our democracy and what we as a nation are all about. The prior indictments, I think, are important to varying degrees, sure. but not about What our government is and how we function. The first indictment related to Donald Trump's alleged falsification of business records relating to hush money payments to Stormy Daniels. There is a debate to be had about whether that's serious enough to merit a criminal charge at all. The second indictment that came through was a federal indictment from Jack Smith, the special counsel down in Florida uh, relating to the retention of sensitive government documents at Mar-a-Lago. Clearly, I think that's a case that needed to be brought. That's well warranted in terms of prosecution. Very important, very serious, but again, does not approach the level of an effort to overturn a presidential election. And that's why this one is different. So what are the charges then? So there are four counts in this indictment. Three of them are conspiracies. So first, there is a charge of conspiring to defraud the United States. Typically, prosecutors will bring that when someone's stealing money from the United States government, uh, ripping off the IRS or Social Security. Here, what the allegation is, is that Donald Trump was trying to steal the election. Then there's a charge relating to a conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding here to try to block Congress from properly counting the electoral votes. There's an extra count. The one non-conspiracy count charges Donald Trump with an attempt to do that. And then the final charge is a conspiracy against rights, which is a little different and interesting. It is a federal crime to intentionally deprive someone of a civil right, of a constitutional right. And here, the right at issue is the right to cast a vote and to have it count. And if I can just brag for a moment on us here at CNN. Sure. There was some uncertainty about what that right was because we knew for a, a couple of weeks that that was one of the charges, but we didn't know what the right was. And we focused on that immediately, that the most likely right here was the right to cast a vote and have it counted. And that's exactly what ended up in the indictment.
0: And if anyone out there, you know, paid close attention to the January 6 hearings in Congress, like some of the information in this indictment will seem pretty familiar. Did we learn anything new in this?
1: There are new details and new facts in the indictment. For example, we now know that Mike Pence kept notes of some of his crucial conversations Mm. with Donald Trump. We also have a sense of what Mike Pence testified to to DOJ. By the way, he did not testify in front of the committee. Right. But Um, Jack Smith got him to talk. Yeah, because look. We saw during the January 6th committee, a person can sort of discard a congressional subpoena with minimal, if any, consequences. Does not work that way in the criminal world. And so Mike Pence talked. And among other things, there's a very memorable passage in there where he's sort of debating with Trump, and Trump's telling him, I want you to throw out these votes, and Pence is resisting. And, and at one point, Donald Trump says to him, quote, you're too honest, according to the indictment. You're too honest. You're wow. too honest. So you look, that's the kind of thing that will, if we're thinking ahead to trial, will come from Mike Pence's testimony. But uh, we'll see how he, st- you know, if, if we ever get to this point, we'll see how he stands up as a witness. Since the attack on our Capitol, the Department of Justice has remained committed to ensuring accountability for those criminally responsible for what happened that day. This case is brought consistent with that commitment, and our investigation of other individuals continues. Jack Smith himself has said in his very brief public remarks that this investigation is ongoing. I know prosecutors always say that, but I think it's clear that there will be more to come on this case. I think it's quite likely that the co-conspirators identified in this first indictment will at some point be charged, and it's possible that we could see additional charges against Donald Trump, like we just saw in the Mar-a-Lago documents right. case. superseding indictment. Exactly. Well, thank you very much. This is a very sad day for America. So Donald Trump went into court this week, and he pled not guilty, as expected, and so this case is underway. And during the course of the week, we started to hear the beginnings of what Donald Trump's defense strategy will be. So if you can't beat him, you persecute him or you prosecute him. We can't let this happen in America. Thank you very much.
0: Let's talk about how this prosecution is going to work, Ellie, because The indictment goes to great lengths to say that Trump knew his election lies were false and that he told them anyway. I want to read a little bit from page one here. Quote, These claims were false, and the defendant knew that they were false, but the defendant repeated and widely disseminated them anyway to make his knowingly false claims appear legitimate, create an intense national atmosphere of mistrust and anger, and erode public faith in the administration of the election." Is the lie the thing here? Like, do prosecutors need to prove that Trump knew he lost?
1: The lie is a big part of the thing here. So this all goes to the crucial and really difficult issue of establishing intent. Prosecutors will have to show in order to support this conspiracy, not just the actions, and and many of the actions here are sort of uncontested, what was said publicly, what was done publicly, but that Donald Trump either knew that he lost or in any exercise of reasonable care, should have known or turned a blind eye to that fact. And they try to build that case really in in a couple ways. One, they cite all sorts of influential uh, people, authoritative people, the attorney general, the head of cybersecurity, who told him, said directly or publicly, there was no fraud. And also there are certain moments when Donald Trump himself appears to acknowledge Mm -hmm. that he knows he lost the election. So that's going to be a crucial battleground in this trial. Joining me now is the former president's newest attorney to his team, John Lauro. John, thanks so much for being here tonight. In particular, we heard one of Donald Trump's defense lawyers here, John Lauro, who was interviewed by our colleague Caitlin Collins. And Mr. Lauro, I think, gave us a pretty good preview of what's ahead. This indictment is about pure politics. We engage in vigorous debate in this country about politics. What we don't do is criminalize political speech. Lauro made clear that Donald Trump likely will rely on a First Amendment defense. He'll argue that his speech was political speech, maybe aggressive, maybe overheated, maybe even untruthful. However, he's covered, according to the defense argument that appears to be taking shape here, by the First Amendment, and you can't criminalize that. And the final ask that Mr. Trump made to Vice President Pence was simply pause the voting. There's nothing inherently unconstitutional or illegal about that. In fact, he had
0: an, an opinion from a very well-known constitutional scholar that said that's fine, that that's legal. Mr. Trump is not a lawyer. He's a businessman. General
1: general and official said that that was was not fine, that that was certainly illegal that he was asking. They weren't just asking for a pause. He was asking to overturn the legitimate results. But, John, let me ask you. There also has been a suggestion by Lauro and others that Donald Trump will argue that he relied on the advice of his lawyers. And you are entitled to do that with certain important restrictions. so Like he was, just, he was just following what his close confidants were saying. So there is an actual legal defense called advice of counsel. And if you can establish that your lawyer told you this was okay to do, then that negates the criminal intent. That means you're going to beat the case. But easier said than done, because to make that argument as a defendant, first of all, you give up, you waive attorney-client privilege, meaning now... The vast majority of your conversations with your lawyer, which used to be secret, now they're all fair game. And the advice can't be patently ridiculous. The advice has to be something that a
0: reasonable person— Like thousands of dead people voted in a certain state.
1: Well, that'll be the argument, right? The argument Donald Trump will say, hey, if my lawyers or advisors are telling me that, I can rely on that. What do I know? How do I know better than them? But let's also keep in mind whenever we talk about these competing arguments that we're going to hear about intent. Donald Trump doesn't have to prove anything. He doesn't have to prove he believed he actually won the election. And it's not a question of who has the better argument. If you're the prosecutors here, you have to prove your theory beyond a reasonable doubt. That is a very high standard bar, yeah. under the law. Yeah. Mm. What do we know about
0: the judge assigned to the case? Because if past this prologue, we're going to see a lot of attacks from Team Trump, presumably against this judge.
1: We certainly will see those attacks. This is a really accomplished and I think, impressive judge, Judge Tanya Chutkin. She is a federal district court, trial court judge in Washington, D.C. Judge Chutkin was appointed or nominated by President Barack Obama. Most tellingly, I think, for this case, she has handled many of the prosecutions of January 6 rioters, and she has been very tough on those individuals. She has handed out severe sentences. She has made various statements about the importance of the attack on the Capitol. At one point, she said in one case that the individual did not go into the Capitol out of some sense of patriotism, but he did it for one man. I'm paraphrasing here, but of course she was referring to Donald Trump. The other thing is there was a dispute about one of the January 6th committee subpoenas that Donald Trump tried to fight in court. She got that case and she rejected Trump's arguments And she made the memorable statement that presidents are not kings and plaintiff, meaning Trump, plaintiff is not president. So I don't read into that, that there's any sort of pre-existing bias. I'm sure Trump has and will made that argument. But I read into that, that she takes what happened after the 2020 election very seriously.
0: And so is this going to go to trial before the 2024 election? Because he's got those
1: other trials, too. That is the million dollar question, I think. Let's just stand back and look at the 2024 calendar at this point. As it currently stands, we have a five-month or so block right in the middle of the 2024 year where the two prior cases we mentioned are already scheduled for trial. The Manhattan Hush Money case is scheduled to start at the end of March. That's going to take us through April. The other Jack Smith DOJ case, the Mar-a-Lago Documents case, is scheduled to start in May, late May. That's going to take us certainly through June and I think through July. It's not going to go after that block. You're not going to start a trial in August of 2024. That's going to go until the, up and through the election. That's way too politically fraught. No judge is going to start a trial that late. No judge is going to start a trial in so September or they,
0: they are wary of those optics of
1: being so close to election day when they're scheduling these things? Yes. The optics, the practicality, the fairness of it, really, potentially to both sides. There is just no way a judge is going to start a trial in August or September of 2024. It will be going on while voting is happening. Voting starts in September, early voting in some states. To me, these two cases, that that sort of early-ish to mid-2024 are the only viable time to try a case like this. And we're still waiting on possible charges in Georgia, on state charges, and that could complicate things too further complicating things, we will. It is sort of remarkable when you step back and think of the big picture that we're about to see a fourth indictment. I think it's all but certain, given the not so subtle signaling that the DA has done, that Trump will be indicted again and for a fourth time and soon in Georgia. And let me just throw in, I think there's a genuine question, not legally, but just pragmatically about whether there's any need for that, because Jack Smith's case covers the seven disputed states, including in detail, Georgia. I think if we see a fourth indictment that covers the same conduct that's already addressed in part of Jack Smith's indictment, it fuels Donald Trump's claims and the claims of his supporters that this has become a pile on, uh, a partisan driven pile on. Keep in mind, by the way, unlike DOJ, the the district attorney in Fulton County is she has a D next to her name. She's an elected Democrat. So um, if I if I was in charge of all prosecutors in the country and nobody is, I would say let's think hard about whether it makes sense to bring this case.
0: Hmm. Interesting, Ellie. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Dave. One thing is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Paula Ortiz and me, David Rind. Matt Dempsey is our production manager. Fez Jamil is our senior producer. Greg Peppers is our supervising producer, and Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of CNN Audio. If you like the show, we'd love to hear from you. I know I say this most weeks, but just leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It's the easiest way to let us know you're listening. We'll be back next Sunday. Talk to you then. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's Chief Medical Correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, I sit down with Giles Yeo.
1: It is a problem of our brain influencing the hunger. So hunger is a brain scenario, even though the feeling of hunger comes from your stomach.
0: It's a very new and provocative way of thinking about a condition that impacts more than 40% of Americans. But the thing is, this approach could have big consequences for the way that we treat obesity. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts.